Memory. Starting with the nature of memory, with short-term memory, the duration of short-term memory is about 18 seconds. This was found by Peterson and Peterson using a consonant trigram experiment. Participants were asked to remember a single nonsense syllable of three consonants and then given an interference task to stop them rehearsing the trigram. They were then asked to recall the trigrams after different times, 3, 6, 9, 12, 15 or 18 seconds. Peterson and Peterson found that while recall was good after 3 seconds, about 80%, only 10% were remembered after 18 seconds. The capacity of short-term memory is 7 plus slash minus 2 items. This is found by measuring immediate digit span. A number of random digits are read out to the participants and they then have to repeat them back, uh, straight back in the correct order. The sequence length at which they are correct 50% of the time is the digit span. Miller found this to be 7 plus slash minus 2 items. However, chunking can occur to remember more information. Coding. Acoustic coding is the type of coding used for short-term memory. This is found by Conrad. Conrad found that rhyming letters were harder to recall than non-rhyming letters due to acoustic confusion errors. He also found the same with rhyming and non-rhyming words. To consolidate, the duration is 18 seconds, the capacity is 7 plus slash minus 2 items, and the coding is acoustic. Long-term memory, so the duration is from minutes to a lifetime. This was found by Barrick, who did an opportunity sample of ex-high school students aged 17 to 74 and tested them in a number of ways. Free recall of all former classmates, a name and photo matching test and a name recognition test. Accuracy was assessed against high school yearbooks. Barrick found a 90% accuracy in face and name recognition, but free recall was less accurate. 60% after 15 years and 30% uh, accurate after 48 years of leaving school. This shows that classmates are rarely forgotten when clues are given. Therefore, the long-term memory has a very long duration, which is from minutes to a lifetime. Capacity is limitless, but impossible to measure. Coding is semantic. This was found by Baddeley, who gave participants a list of words to remember, and recall was tested after 20 minutes. Recall of words of similar meaning were more difficult to uh, to re recall than words of non-similar meaning due to semantic confusion er uh, errors. So therefore, these semantic confusion errors suggest that coding in the long-term memory is by meaning. We also need to touch upon uh, the nature of memory of a sensory register, which has a half a second duration, unlimited capacity, and modality-specific coding with iconic memory and echoic memory, which is modality-specific. So, going over it all again uh, very briefly, nature of memory or short-term memory, duration, 18 seconds, Peterson and Peterson, capacity, 7 plus slash minus 2 items, immediate digit span, found by Miller, and a co coding is acoustic, as found by Comrade. Nature of memory is long-term memory, duration is from minutes to a lifetime, found by Barrick, capacity is unlimited but impossible to measure, and coding is semantic, as found by Baddeley. Evaluating this... It enables a high control of extraneous variables so we can infer cause and effect. For example, Peterson and Peterson's uh, experiment on the nature of short-term memory's duration had uh, interference tasks and had controlled times for recall. So therefore, extraneous variables were controlled and cause and effect could be inferred. 
Tests using strings of consonants in a lab do not reflect memory in real life. In real life, we remember things without specifically trying, and we rarely repeat things to ourselves. Furthermore, in real life, we remember events and meaningful information. Therefore, many of this research may lack ecological validity and in fact not tell us anything about the nature of memory in the real world due to the trivial, trivial tasks used. The study specifically asked the participants to remember single words and letters, so this introduces demand characteristics, where participants guess that they are supposed to be remembering the words presented to them, so the research may lack internal validity. A strength of Barrick's duration of long-term memory study in, uh, specifically is that it uses memory for classmates and is therefore an example of how we use memory in real life, meaning this uh, specific study does have high ecological validity. In contrast to the others, where trivial words are used, not remembered for very long, as um, due to the low ecological validity. However, Barrick's study does have its problems of its own. It is only testing memory for faces that we know, and therefore it may be rep maybe not representative of all types of memory. It is possible that memory for faces is a special type of memory and remembered for longer than other types of information, due to the fact that humans are social species, and in terms of evolutionary survival, it would have been beneficial to remember the names, uh, sorry, remember the faces of enemies and allies. Also, Barrick's study also had a little control of variables. For example, the participants may have looked at their yearbooks recently. Next is the multi-store model, which was put forward by Atkinson and Schifrin. So, in the multi-store model, external information from the environment enters the sensory register. Sensory register has a duration of half a second, so is stored very quickly before decaying or being passed to short-term memory. As we know, the type of coding in the sensory register is modality-specific, meaning that it's iconic stores and echoic stores, and it has an unlimited capacity. There are different sensory stores for different senses, so visual information enters the iconic memory and is stored visually, but sound-based information enters the echoic memory where it is stored acoustically. When attention is paid, the information passes to the short-term memory, which stores only the information that is active at any one time. It's stored by an acoustic code with a limited capacity of 7 plus slash minus 2 items and a duration of under 30 seconds. Information can be easily pushed out of the short-term memory by new information due to displacement. If rehearsed, memory traces can last longer than the 30 seconds and be passed to the long-term memory where it is stored semantically, can remain for a lifetime and has a limitless capacity. Loss is possible due uh, causing forgetting. So here we can apply all of the different studies that we've said before in the nature of memory. So the duration of short-term memory, 18 seconds to 30 seconds, Peterson-Peterson capacity, 7 plus slash minus 2 items, Miller and coding acoustic by Comrade. Duration, long-term memory from minutes to a lifetime by Barrick, capacity unlimited but impossible to measure, and coding semantic as found by Baddeley. So external information from the environment enters the sensory register, half a second duration, modality specific iconic memory and uh, echoic memory, and limitless capacity. Attention is paid, making the information pass the short-term memory, which has an acoustic code, limited capacity of 7 plus slash minus 2 items, a duration of under 30 seconds. Information can be pushed out of the short-term memory uh, due to displacement. Rehearsal makes the memory traces last longer than 30 seconds and pass this long-term memory. Stored semantically, can remain for a lifetime, has a limitless capacity. Losses for possible, however, causing forgetting. 
evaluating the multi-store model, there is supporting evidence from free recall experiments. These free recall experiments support the idea of there being distinct short-term memory and long-term memory stores. Participants are given 20 words in succession to remember and asked to recall them in any order. The results then fall into a pattern called the serial position curve. The primacy effect showed that the participants tend to recall the first words in the list, showing that these words had time to be rehearsed and passed to the long-term memory showing recall from the long-term memory. The asymptote showed a poorly remembered middle due to an increased number of words that had filled the short-term memory, causing the information to be displaced before entering the long-term memory. The recency effect also shows that participants recall the last items from the list, which showed recall from short-term memory due to no displacement. This suggests two different stores. So, free recall experiments... Uh, 20 words in succession given to remember and recall. The results then fall into a pattern called the serial position curve. The primacy effect showing recall from long-term memory. Asymptote showing poorly remembered middle due to increased number of words that had filled short-term memory, uh, displaying displacement. Recency effect showing uh, recall from short-term memory due to no displacement. So this obviously proves that there are two different stores. The idea of rehearsal being the mechanism of transferring information from short-term memory to long-term memory has been criticised. We do not repeat everything that gets transferred or transfer everything we repeat, so the model does not explain why some information is remembered and some isn't, and rehearsal cannot be the only way information is passed to the long-term memory. For example, Craik and Lockhart uh, developed the levels of processing model, which showed that things are not are processed more deeply... Uh, sorry... Craig and Lockhart developed the levels of processing model, which showed that things that are processed more deeply are better. For example, if we process something in terms of its meaning, which is deep processing, then we remember it better than if it has only been processed in terms of its physical features, known as shallow processing. So therefore, it is a type of processing that affects our memory, not simply rehearsal. The model states that information only flows from short-term memory to long-term memory. However, information must flow in both directions. For example, for chunking to work, meanings of words and prior knowledge must be accessed from long-term memory and passed to short-term memory. Therefore, the information flow must be interactive, not sequential as the model suggests, so thus the model is reductionist. Next is the working memory model, which was put forward by Baddeley and Hitch. So Baddeley and Hitch proposed the working memory model because they believed the multi-store model by Atkinson and Schifrin underestimated the importance of the short-term memory. They believed that the short-term memory was more complex and active rather than simply being a waiting stage. The main principles of the working memory is that it holds all of the material that you are thinking at any moment. It sends material to and from our long-term memory. Information is fragile and easily lost, so it must be kept active to be retained. The model is a multi-component system with several connected parts which can work together or independently. If two tasks make use of the same component, however, they cannot be performed successfully due to the limited capacity of the parts. The central executive controls the activity of the working memory model by directing attention to the most important information at the expense of other less important information. The central executive determines at any time how resources, so the, uh, the free slave systems, which are slaves to the central executives, how these resources are allocated to tasks. The central executive works independently of the senses. It has limited capacity, so cannot attend to many things at once. 
The phonological loop is an auditory store which rehearses sound-based information to prevent decay. This consists of two parts, the phonological store and the articulatory loop. The phonological store, as part of the phonological loop, uh, deals with perception of sound, including speech. The phonological store holds the words you hear and is known as the inner ear. The articulatory loop, however, is a verbal rehearsal system we used to de uh, prevent the decay by saying things over and over until it is spoken out loud. The words are silently repeated, so looped uh, in the name, articulatory loop, uh, has a duration of about two seconds. So in this articulatory loop with a duration of two seconds, we can only hold as much information here as we can rehearse in two seconds. Visio-spatial sketchpad deals with information by visually organising it, rather like laying uh, items on a table. Actual visual information is maintained in working memory model, uh, like almost like a mental rough paper used when doing mental arithmetic. Logie suggested that visual-spatial sketchpad can be divided into a visual store and an inner scribe, which deals with spatial relations. So there's this part of the visual store and an inner scribe which deals with spatial relations according to Logie. And lastly, the episodic buffer. So the episodic buffer was added 25 years later after the original release by Buddley. This is the third slave system. He realised that there was no general store for information. The episodic buffer integrates information from all other components and also has a limited capacity. It records episodes as they're happening and thus has a sense of time and consent information for long-term memory. Evaluating this now, there are supporting evidence from Badley and Hitch's dual task performance studies. So two tasks were given to participants. The first was a verbal reasoning task in which they were shown letters AB or BA and a statement describing the orders that they were in uh, and they were asked to answer true or false as quickly as possible. This task, the verbal reasoning task, occupied the central executive. So the Badley and Hitch then gave the participants another task, so a second task, which could be one of three different tasks. So task A was repeating the word the over and over. This occupied the articulatory loop. Number two was saying random digits out loud. This occupied both the articulatory loop and the central executive. And three was a control group as they answered as they had no second task. The results showed that when the verbal reasoning task was combined with versions A or B, so A was repeating the word the over and over, occupying the articulatory loop, and C, which was no second task. So when they were combined with version A or C of the second task, performance on the task one was not affected. But when combined with version B, which was saying random digits out loud, which occupied both the articulatory loop and the central executive, the speed dropped significantly due to the central executive being used by both. This shows that when two tasks use the same component, then difficulty is caused. But when different components are used, performance is not effective. This demonstrates that the components of working mem memory are separate and that they have limited capacity. Also, brain imaging studies suggest that tasks needing different parts of the working memory model use different parts of the brain, giving us evidence that there are separate systems at work, therefore supporting the model. However, research shows that there are individual differences in working memory, such as reading, spelling and writing. However, it is not clear from the model why these individual differences occur. 
Also, also, cognitive psychologists argue that there is a lack of clarity over the central executive. Baddeley recognised this himself and said, and I quote, it is the most important but least understood component of working memory. Most research focuses on the slave systems. So we have the phonological store. We have the, um, sorry, the phonological loop. And then we have the visuospatial sketchpad. And then we have the episodic buffer. But not much research is focused on the central executive. So there's little experimental support. For example, it is said to have limited capacity, but the actual capacity is unknown. Types of long-term memory. So subtypes are explicit memory, which is fact-based memory, which can be consciously uh, retrieved, which is known as knowing what, and implicit memory, which are memories which we are not consciously aware of, knowing how. Types of long-term memory are episodic, semantic, and procedural. Episodic memory is memory for personal experiences, which has three elements, the details of the event, the context, and the emotion. This is an explicit type of memory, so it can be consciously achieved. And a type, uh, an example of episodic memory is remembering the first, our first days at school, which is a memory of a personal experience. Details of the event could be going into class for the first time, seeing other um, people in the class for the first time, uh, your first lesson. So that is details of the event context so the context is the environment so you're in a school for the first time it's maybe a new situation because you're not used to school and emotion so you may feel anxious you may feel stressed you may feel uh, a bit bewildered by the new situation so episodic memory is memory for personal experiences semantic memory is memory for information that is not linked to particular personal events it is shared memory for facts and knowledge and is an explicit type of memory for example, a type of semantic memory is remembering the capital of England is London. So this memory is not really linked to particular personal events, but it's just shared memory for facts and knowledge. Procedural mem memory is skill-based memory, which is action or muscle-based. This is usually acquired through repetition and practice, and thus becomes automatic. So it becomes an implicit type of memory, which we are not consciously aware of, so knowing how. An example of procedural memory is remembering how to ride a bike. As soon as you get on a bike, you're instantly able to ride it. So this memory has become automatic as it's a procedural memory that is skill-based, which is action or muscle-based acquired through repetition and practice, which becomes automatic and thus a type of implicit memory. Supporting evidence of the types of long-term memory comes from brain scans. So brain scans have shown that different parts of the brain are active when different kinds of long-term memory are used. Episodic memory is associated with the hippocampus and the temporal lobe, semantic memory with the temporal lobe, and procedural memory with the cerebellum and the motor cortex. So this supports there being different types of long-term memory. So I'm just going to say that again because that's quite a big chunk of information to remember. Episodic memory is associated with the hippocampus and the temporal lobe. Semantic memory is associated with the temporal lobe. And procedural memory is associated with the cerebellum and motor cortex, supporting there being different types of long-term memory. There's also supporting evidence from the brain-damaged patient HM. HM had an operation to reduce his epileptic fit, which removed his hippocampus and some of his temporal lobes. HM could not form episodic or semantic memories because of this, but he could form procedural memories. This was shown by Milner, who found that HM could learn new procedural skills such as mirror drawing. 
So on his first attempt of mirror drawing on day one, there were 30 errors, but on first attempt of day three, there was just one error. This supports there being different types of long-term memory. So let me just go over it again. HM could not form episodic or semantic memories because the operation to reduce his epileptic fits had removed his hippocampus and some of his temporal lobes. If we go back to those brain scans which were supporting evidence, episodic memory is associated with the hippocampus and temporal lobe, semantic memory is associated with the temporal lobe and procedural memory is associated with the cerebellum and motor cortex. So HM could not form episodic or semantic memories because this operation to reduce his epileptic fits had removed his hippocampus and some of his temporal lobes. However, he could still form procedural memories as his cerebellum and motor cortex was not affected by the operation. Therefore, Milner showed that he could learn new procedural skills such as mirror drawing. However, using case studies like HM, as each individual case study has unique characteristics, it may not be able to generalise to the rest of the population. So on to forgetting now. The first type of forgetting is interference. So what is forgetting? Forgetting is the loss of ability to recall or recognise something that has been previously learnt. Interference and retrieval failure are the two types that we're going to be studying. Interference is one when one memory disrupts the ability to recall another. This is most likely to occur when the two memories are quite similar. A real-world study that shows interference in action is uh, a study on rugby players. Rugby players were asked to recall the names of teams that they had played against over a season. Some players had played in all games, but some had missed some games due to injury. It was found that those who played more games forgot more of the team names, which suggests interference caused forgetting due to there being more names to interfere with each other. There are two types of interference, proactive interference and retroactive interference. Starting with proactive interference, this is when past learning interferes with current attempts to learn something. So old learning interferes with new learning. So we can remember this by proactive learning, having pro in it, so going forward. So we want to be able to go forward, we want to be able to learn new information, but past learning interferes with current attempts to learn something, so the new memory is disrupted. A supporting study for proactive interference was by Underwood. Underwood analysed findings from a number of studies where participants have to learn a series of words. Underwood found that participants who learnt lists remember, uh, uh, learnt one list remembered 70% 24 hours later. But participants who learnt 10 plus lists remembered just 20% 24 hours later. Each list makes it harder to recall subsequent lists demonstrating proactive interference as old memory is disrupting the new memory. The next type of interference is retroactive interference. So this is where current attempts to learn something interferes with past learning. So we can remember this uh, with retro, which is going backwards. So we're trying to go back to past learning. We're trying to remember past learning, but current attempts to learn something interferes with past learning. So a supporting study of this is where participants were given nonsense syllables to learn for six minutes. And then some of them were given a task in which they had to describe three paintings, but the other had no task. Recall was found to be poorer for participants who completed the task describing the paintings. So the new memory of describing pictures, uh, the paintings had interfered with the previous learning of the syllables that they had learnt in the six minutes. So they were given these syllables and then there were some were just made to describe the three paintings and the new learning uh, of the describing pictures had interfered with the previous learning of the syllables. 
Evaluating interference, most research is lab-based, so that means that it may lack ecological validity, as therefore it may not generalise to real-life memory and forgetting. Learning word lists is an artificial task that does not re uh, reflect memory in real life. Participants may be not motivated to learn such tasks. Also, interference only seems to lead to forgetting if the two memories are similar, so other memories might be forgotten due to the passing of time, known as decay or retrieval failure. So therefore, the explanation cannot be used to explain all types of forgetting. However, there is a positive application, as research has shown that recall and recognition of an advertiser's message is reduced when people are exposed to two adverts from competed brands in the same week. So companies should enhance their memory trace by repeating the adverts several times on the same day and by making their adverts as distinct as possible. So therefore, there are useful implications of the research into interference. So again, we've got the uh, interference general study, which is the rugby players. The proactive interference study is the Underwood, with the 70% remembered 24 hours later if they learnt one list, or 20% remembered 24 hours later if they learnt 10 plus lists. Retroactive interference, we had the syllables learnt and the free paintings, which disrupted the learning of the syllables. And the free uh, AO3 points is that it lacks ecological validity, only occurs if the two memories are similar, so cannot explain all types of forgetting. And it has the positive application of being applied to advertisers' message and how they can improve uh, and enhance the memory trace by repeating the advert several times and making the adverts as distinct as possible, showing that there are useful implications of the research into interference. Next is retrieval failure. So this is where forgetting occurs when the information is stored in the long-term memory but cannot be found due to insufficient cues. And if a cue is given, then the information may be remembered. There are two different cues, context-dependent forgetting and state-dependent forgetting. A supporting study of retrieval failure in general is by Tolving. So Tolving gave lists of words to participants and then tested their free recall on, different, on three different occasions. On average, they recalled 50% of the words, but the striking finding was that the words differed each time. Tolving concluded that the words were stored in memory, but were not always accessible. So as we said, there are two different cues, context-dependent forgetting and state-dependent forgetting, starting with context-dependent forgetting. So this is where forgetting occurs with an absence of cues due to a change in context. So context is the environment or situation. So this is because uh, of an absence of cues due to a change in this context. A support, uh, supporting study for this is where divers were uh, divided into two groups and asked to learn a list of words, with one group learning them under water and the other learning them on land. They then had to recall the words either in the same environment or in the opposite environment. Recall was found to be higher if participants were tested in the same environment that they had learned the list in due to an increase in cues. If they were tested in the opposite environment, then words were forgotten due to a lack of these retrieval cues. This shows evidence of context-dependent forgetting. The next type of cue is state-dependent forgetting. So this is where recall is increased if you are in the same state that you learnt the information in. Forgetting, therefore, occurs due to a lack of retrieval cues when you are in a different state. A supporting study from, for this comes from Goodwin et al. This is where Goodwin asked male volunteers to learn a list of words whether they, when they were either drunk. So this was uh, operationalised by three times the driving limit. Uh, or if they were sober. When recording the list 24 hours later, they were either in the same state they recalled them in or the opposite state. Recall was found to be much higher than uh, when the recall state was the same as the learning state. So if they learn it when they were drunk three times the driving limit, 
If they then recalled the list uh, 24 hours later when they were drunk again, three times the driving limit, then their recall was higher if it, they were in a different uh, state. Evaluating this, many studies have shown the importance of retrieval cues on memory, including many different types of experiments such as lab, field and natural experiments. This suggests that findings can be applied to real-life situations as there is high ecological validity in field and natural experiments. Another strength is that there are real-life applications. For example, cognitive interviews ask to reconstruct the context by imagining the scene of the crime, including what they saw and how they felt. These imaginary cues which pr provide triggers which increase the accuracy of the witness's recall. However, studies that show retrieval cues are most effective, uh, sorry, studies show that retrieval cues are most effective for simple learning, such as lists of words. So look back at these supporting studies. Tolving study, which uh, is the study for general for retrieval fa failure, uh, is learning a list of words. The divers uh, were divided into two groups, having to learn them underwater or on land. They were recalling a list of words. Goodwin et al. asked male villagers to learn a list of words when they were either drunk or sober and then recalled them in the same or different state. So retrieval cues are most effective for simple learning, so list of words. However, in exams, you are having to recall more complex ideas that are less triggered by simple cues. So therefore, the real world application and the ability to explain all examples of forgetting may be limited. Therefore, this explanation of forgetting cannot easily explain all examples of forgetting. Also, there is an issue with cause and effect. The theory suggests that the cue causes the retrieval of memory, but the cue may not cause the effect, so it may not cause the retrieval. It may just be associated with the memory. It is, pos it is impossible to test if the cue did trigger the recall. Therefore, the, rec the research may lack internal validity. So we have Tolvin's study to back up retrieval failure in general. Retrieval failure, definition you need to know is that forgetting occurs when the information is stored in the long-term memory but cannot be found due to insufficient cues. And if a cue is given, then the information may be remembered. Context-dependent forgetting, when forgetting occurs with an absence of cues due to a change in context, which supporting study is a diver study. And then state-dependent forgetting, which is recall is increased if you are in the same state you learned the information in, and forgetting occurs due to a lack of retrieval cues when you're in a different state, which is supported by Goodwin et al.'s study on drunk versus sober. So that is retrieval failure. Next is eyewitness accuracy. So one application of memory in the real world is eyewitness testimonies in the justice system. Ratner concluded that 52% of wrongful arrests were due to inaccurate identification of eyewitnesses. We need to consider four factors that may affect eyewitness testimony accuracy. Misleading information, leading questions, post-event discussion and anxiety. Misleading information was investigated by Loftus, who showed 150 participants a film of a car accident, where the participants were divided into two groups and asked 10 questions about the film. The first group were given questions that were consistent with the film that they had seen, and the second group were given the same question, but one that was misleading. They were asked how fast was the car going when it passed the barn on the country lane. However, there was no barn on the country lane. After one week, the participants were asked another 10 questions. The last question was, did you see a barn? Only 2.7% of the first group answered yes, but 17.3% of the second group answered yes, showing that the non-existent barn had become part of the second group's memory and was now recalled as part of the original event. So these 150 participants were separated into two groups, asked 10 questions, first group were consistent questions, the second group were 
consistent questions except from one that asked how fast was the car going when it passed the barn on the country lane. There was no barn on the country lane. And then a week later, they were uh, they were given another 10 questions. And one question was, did you see a barn? And they found that 2.7% of the first group, which hadn't had the misleading information, answered yes incorrectly. And 17.3% of the second group answered yes. And this is because the non-existent barn that had been added to their memory uh, was now recalled as part of the original event because of that misleading information and the question of how fast was the car going when it passed the barn on the country lane. Leading questions was investigated by Loftus and Palmer. So they showed participants a film of a car accident and afterwards asked them what speed were the vehicles travelling when they hit. Loftus and Palmer, however, replaced the word hit with several different verbs for different groups. A week later, participants were asked if they'd seen any broken glass. Loftus and Palmer found that what word was used affected the estimate of the speed they gave. The word contacted got the lowest of 32 miles per hour and the word smashed got the highest of 41 miles per hour. Those in the smash group were also more likely to answer yes to the smash glass question a week later. So they found that when they asked what speed were the vehicles travelling when they hit, replacing the word hit with several different verbs, and then asking a week later if they'd seen any broken glass, the verb used really affected the estimates of speed that participants gave, contacted 32%, smashed 41%. As well as this, smash group were more likely to answer yes to the smash glass question a week later, showing the effect of leading questions. Post-event discussion was investigated by Gabbert. Gabbert's sample consisted of 60 students from the Uni of Aberdeen and 60 older adults recruited from a local community. Participants watched, watched a video of a girl returning a book to a uni office and then stealing money from a wallet found in the desk drawer. They were then tested on the recall of events within two conditions. There were two conditions in which participants were either tested individually, which was the control group, or in pairs, the co-witness group. Those in the co-witness group were told that they had watched the same video even though one person had seen the girl stealing and the other saw it from another perspective. The participants then discussed the crime together and then all participants completed a questionnaire. Gabbert found that 71% of the witnesses in the co-witness group recalled information that they hadn't actually seen and 60% of the participants in the co-witness group said that the girl was guilty despite not actually seeing her do it. This shows the powerful effect of post-event discussion. So the discussion that had taken place after the video that they had seen, in which they'd seen two different videos, with one making it clear that the girl had stolen and the other seeing it from a different perspective. This discussion had affected how they approached the questions. 71% had uh, stated information that they hadn't actually seen and 60% said the girl was guilty of stealing the money when in fact they hadn't even seen her doing it. The last factor we need to consider is anxiety. So the effect of anxiety is governed by the Yerkes-Dodson law. So the Yerkes-Dodson law uh, argues that an increase in arousal improves performance, but only up to a point called the optimum. When this arousal has passed its optimum, performance in recall tends to decline. So violence raises witnesses' arousal levels past the optimum, leading to poorer memory performance. Also the weapon focus, so the, this the weapon focus is a tendency for witnesses of violent crimes to focus their attention on the weapon, often resulting in poor quality eyewitness testimony as the witness is unable to describe many useful aspects. Also according to the Yerkes-Dodson law, which we can combine the weapon focus and the Yerkes-Dodson law together, the weapon would also cause uh, arousal to pass the optimum, thus causing information uh, performance in recall even to decline. 
The effect of anxiety on eyewitness testimony accuracy was investigated by Loftus. So Loftus asked participants to wait in a room while they waited for their experiment. However, the waiting was the actual experiment, as during their time waiting, they overheard either a low-key low discussion about equipment failure and then saw a person emerging from the lab it had been heard from with a pen with grease on his hand. Or they heard a heated and hostile exchange with the sound of breaking glass and then a man emerged from the lab holding a knife covered with blood. So they either saw a pen with grease or a knife with blood. Participants were then given 50 photos and were asked to identify the man. The participants in the pen group were 49% accurate, but the knife group were only 33% accurate, showing that they were less accurate due to the yerkes dodson law and the weapon focus. So this yerkes dodson law and the weapon focus had caused the erasal levels to pass the optimum, leading to poor memory performance due to the pen group getting 90, uh, 49% accuracy and the knife group getting 33% accuracy, showing that they were less accurate due to this yerkes dodson law and the weapon focus due to the heated and hostile exchange with the sound of breaking glass and then a man emerging from the lab holding a knife covered with blood compared to a low-key discussion about equipment failure and then a person emerged from the lab it had been heard from with a pen with grease on his hand. Evaluating the eyewitness testimony is had a valuable contribution to our understanding of eyewitness testimony and it has been highly influential in the writing of the Devlin Report. The Devlin Report concluded that eyewitness testimony should not be uh, resulting in a conviction in an English court without other corroborating evidence. As well as this, it has led to the development of the cognitive interview, which is a technique used by the police to improve reliability of evidence. However, it lacks ecological validity as they are carried out in artificial lab experiments. Uh, environments, so it may not generalise to real-life eyewitness testimonies. It's artificial as it lacks the stress and emotion of real life. This is supported by Yule and Cutshaw, who examined the recall of witnesses to a shooting in a town in Canada. Some months after the event, Yule and Cutshaw tracked down the witnesses and asked to interview them. Fifteen agreed to take part. The witnesses were able to recall the incident in a great amount of detail. High level of agreement between witnesses uh, were found and leading questions were found to have no impact. This is contrary to what Loftus put forward. So Ewan Cutshaw's findings are from the real world and so have a high ecological validity, showing that Loftus's research does have low ecological validity. So it lacks the stress and emotion of real life and thus lacks ecological validity as supported by Yule and Cutshaw's experiment on the uh, 15 people who had seen the shooting in a town in Canada. It's also artificial as there are no consequences in lab experiments. The participants are aware that their inaccuracies will not lead to serious consequences and so be, uh, may be less accurate. Supporting evidence for this comes from Foster et al, who showed participants a video of a bank robbery and were asked to identify the robber in an identity parade. Half were led to believe the robbery was real and their responses would influence the trial and the other half assumed it was a simulation. They found that identification was more accurate in the first group due to fear of consequences. So what we need to know for eyewitness testimony uh, accuracy is misleading information, Loftus's study. 2.7% of the first group answered yes, but 17.3% of the second group answered yes. Leading questions investigated by Loftus and Palmer. Uh, the hit, the verbs being, mis uh, being replaced, so that all of the different verbs contacted got the lowest of 32%. 32 miles per hour and smash got the highest of 41 miles per hour and were also more likely to answer yes to the smash glass question a week later. Post-event discussion investigated by Gabbert 
with the co-witness group versus the individual control group. 71% of the witnesses in the co-witness group recalled information that they hadn't actually seen, and 60% of the participants in the co-witness group said that the girl was guilty despite not actually seeing her do it. And then anxiety, we need to consider the Yerkes-Dodson law and the weapon focus and then the investigation by Loftus who had asked participants uh, to wait in a room while they waited for their experiment. But this was the actual experiment as during this time they had either a low-key discussion and saw a man come out with a pen with grease in his hand or a heated and hostile exchange with the sound of breaking glass and then they saw a man emerge with a knife covered in blood, shown 50 photos and the participants in the pen group were nice 49 percent accurate but the knife group were only 33 accurate showing that there was less accuracy due to the yerkeshofton law and the weapon focus evaluating it we had the devlin report the cognitive interview and then we have it lacking ecological validity because it's artificial so it may not generalize because it lacks the stress and emotion of real life supported by you and cutshaw and there are no consequences in lab experiments shown by foster et al so we touched upon the cognitive interview and we're going to go into it in more detail now. So the cognitive interview is a technique used by the police to improve the reliability of the evidence. The two principles of memory involved are that information are, is organised and that memories can be accessed in a number of ways. And memories are context dependent, meaning that retrieval will be, will be more effective if the cues present at the time of storage are reinstated. There are no set questions and no time limit, so witnesses do not feel time pressured. There are open questions and the interviewer remains silent. There are two factors that are used in cognitive interview. First is reinstate the context, second is change the sequence, three is change the perspective and fourth is report everything. First reinstate the context. The witness needs to be returned in their mind to the context in which the event occurred so attempts will be made to recreate the original mood and environment. This may uh, increase recall. They will be asked to think back to before, during and after the event and recall their mood etc which may produce uh, cues. They may also be asked to change their sequence, so witnesses asked to recall events in different orders, including reversing the order of events so gaps can be filled. Uh, third, they may change perspective, so recall from another person's perspective. And fourth, they may ask to report everything, so report all information, even if it seems irrelevant, which is likely to arise things that have been pre previously edited out, which provides cues. So reinstate the context, change the sequence, change perspective and report everything. Evaluating cognitive interviews, it is effective according to Geiselman, who published the first empirical test of the interview type, which found that it obtained up to 35% more correct details about simulated events than untrained interviewers, with no increase in the number of errors. It was found to increase the reporting of correct details in adults with learning difficulties, as well as uh, senior citizens and children of preschool age. So Geiselman showed that it is effective with 35% more correct details about simulated events than untrained interviewers. And he also showed that it's also particularly useful with adults with learning difficulties, senior citizens and children of preschool age. However, it is a form of communication and depends on the skills of the interviewer. They can be trained, but it is difficult to assess their competence as they are doing more than simply following a set of learnt technical skills. It may be easy for an inexperienced interviewer to ask questions that may be considered to be leading, so wording may still play a role. Also, the technique takes more time than it is often available, and instead it has been argued that deliberate strategies aim to limit an eyewitness testimony to the minimum amount of information the officer needs to be uh, catched that the criminal should be used and is more effective instead. Also, cognitive interviews are more effective straight after the event, so it becomes less effective as the passage of time between the event and recall increases. 
So it's effective, guys are men 35% more accurate, especially with adults, learning difficulties, children and senior citizens. It's a form of communication, depends on skills, difficult to access, uh, assess their competence, so training is not always sufficient. The technique takes more time, so is often available, and it's more effective straight after the events becomes less effective as the passage of time between the event and recall increases. That is the end of memory.